Create, connect, communicate. Create, connect, communicate. Magical, enigmatical, gift of gab, super, super, agile, story, story from the space Come well lit. <laughs> just unfold those onion layers oh man <laughs> oh man i haven't like prepared i just thought i'll just go with exactly. the story again like i don't know it's the best yeah we just kind of freestyle and see what happens see yeah. what comes out super that's awesome super. Okay. see what happens are okay. you ready ma'am i'm ready okay <laughs> i'm ready sir here we go here we go <laughs> good afternoon and welcome back to another episode of firelight chats where we broadcast the most super natural stories from our space lab studio here in Da'an, Taipei, Taiwan. Today's story begins fittingly in the continent where it all began, Africa, Feijou, or more precisely, all the way down to the tip of Good Hope, South Africa, Nanfei, where our guest was born and raised. From South Africa to landing in Taiwan, 18 years with a dramatic two-year intermission set in Deutschland, this story encompasses many ups, downs, failures and successes, ins, outs, big bites, stage frights, and other gripping performances. Fighting through fear, grappling with uncertainty, challenging established regimes and orthodoxies, teaching, learning, and growing, breaking cycles, breaking bad, breaking free, burlesque, break, dancing, all the way through and so good it sometimes hurts, like pure ecstasy. Discovering new connections, building community, forging safe spaces, creating magical coincidences, and as the fairy dust settles and stretches into another morning sunrise, finding a voice, self, identity, purpose, and helping others do likewise. So, without further ado, let us indulge in the stories and chat by the fireside with our special guest for this episode of Firelight Chats, the one and only Anya Whitestone. Whitehead. Whitehead. No way. <laughs> but damn, that is the best introduction I've ever received in my life. <laughs> nice. Welcome, welcome. Thank you very Ms. much, Whitehead. Kane. Yes. Anya Whitehead, how are you today? I'm doing very well on this glorious, sweaty day. I know. It is a beautifully sunny day, but extremely hot. Ridiculous. We have the AC on full blast and it's still nice and warm. It's toasty in here. Totally. <laughs> but we'll just be zen with it all. You have to. There's no point in fighting it whatsoever. Exactly. You just got to exactly. embrace it. From sunny Taiwan to sunny South Africa, as we mentioned. Yes. Yes. This is where you come from. Let us delve all the way back deep into the history of South Africa. Oh, well, <laughs> I'll dive into mine. I can't speak 
Right, Enough. the history of South Africa. No, I mean, it's layered and charged. But I think it is the perfect starting point. Coming from such a beautiful, multicultural, melting pot of cultures and races and ethnicities, I think it really lent a lot to the way I wanted to experience life. I only left South Africa for the first time. Coming to Taiwan was the first stamp in my passport mm. ever. And that was 22, 2005. 22. 22. Years old. Yep. Young Anya. Yeah, just finished university. Big dreams that were kind of dashed. I thought I would be a documentary filmmaker or a journalist of some point. I mean, I knew I wanted to tell stories. I wanted to meet people. But I did a six-month internship, a media house, before I left. And I was like, this isn't really for me. It's a mm. bit too cutthroat. So uh, yeah, I'd heard of this tiny little island called Taiwan. You know, I had four years of student debt behind me. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, we <laughs> yeah, where, where can I go? Uh, that's as different as possible, where I can actually do something I always wanted to do, which is teach and get rid of the student debt. And a strange coincidence, I had a cousin living here at the time that I didn't even know about. So mm. It all kind of just fell together. Without. All the pieces fell together. Totally. So you had no idea your cousin was here? No idea. No idea. He was uh, from my late father's side of the family. I'd only met him once before, so I had no idea. When did you find out that he was here? I guess a couple of months before. Like if I arrived in May 2005, I found out in December that he 2004 that he was here. Okay. We got into a phone call immediately through my aunt and he was like, I promised your dad I would look out for you and you're welcome to stay with me as long as you need until you find your feet. So that's yeah, awesome. It just got the ball rolling. Uh, I stayed with him for three months. I got my first job, got my first apartment lined up and then, yeah, I was off. That's great. I mean, I'm sure that helps a lot, even though you were already prepared to come on your own anyways. I was. I had two or three friends that I knew from university who were here and like one Taiwanese South African friend from South Africa. But that was it. Hmm. And my cousin. And uh, I still remember I arrived on a Saturday and that Monday I went to meet my Taiwanese friend in Shida. And my cousin was like, uh, are you sure? And I was like, yep, that's my mission for today. Leave the house and get back to the house. If hmm. I can do that, he's like, you're brave. It's only been 48 hours. I was <laughs> right. like, yep, I got to do it. This is what I got to do. Yep. Okay. So yeah. before we get into the Taiwan life, mm. let us go back to South Africa. Where did you grow up in South Africa? I was born in Pretoria and uh, we moved. One of the three capitals. Yes, exactly. (laughs) (laughs) But I moved around quite a bit. We moved to Durban, Peter Maritzburg, Kloof, Port Elizabeth, then back to Midrand. And then I studied in Grahamstown, Mm. uh, Rhodes University. Makanda. Yeah. Yes. And uh, so, yeah, I got to see a lot of the country and went to seven, eight different schools. So being adaptable and packing up boxes and unpacking boxes became a second nature to me. (laughs) Ah, It's so interesting. I mentioned this to you last time, but one of our previous guests, DJ Caitlin from ICRT, she is a diplomat, as we say with quotes. She is the daughter of an Australian diplomat. So she grew up living in six different countries and traveling all around the world. But... What about you? Why was there so much moving around in your Uh, childhood? 
just general upheaval, mm. uh, retrenchments and kind of just struggling, I think, for my stepfather at the time. Um, so we just followed him. Yeah, I mean, it wasn't ideal. It wasn't necessarily the best case scenario. But um, despite that, it kind of, I think, built up a lot of like tenacity of making new friends adjusting to schools. I think it actually worked in my favor in the long run, like, mm. you know, but uh, yeah, not an exciting story, unfortunately. Right. Just kind of a bit of hardship and kind of having to roll with the punches. Okay. Yeah. What about your best memories from growing up in South Africa? Were there any, were there any rays of sunshine oh. throughout this? Well, always my heart belongs in the Eastern Cape. So living in Port Elizabeth, being in Grahamstown, for me, those were like the highlights. The um, college years. Even before that, like mm. just spending time on the river. We had a little boat and skis and paddle boards and sand duning and Ooh, snorkeling nice. together, like camping. Those kinds of things were quite fantastic. When my mom, my brother and I actually moved back to Midrand when I was 12, away from the coast, that was kind of kind of a bit sad <laughs> mm. yeah south africa's diversity of nature is so amazing yeah six different biospheres exactly mm. yeah it's so beautiful i've only yeah. been to cape town but even cape town is just so beautiful stunning yeah, yeah. no exactly. but it's interesting only having left and when i've gone back for longer periods of time do i really see it now as a world traveler and go oh my god it's wow. really <laughs> the most beautiful country in the world right <laughs> like it's just it's got everything i know it even has countries within countries yes yes <laughs> exactly yeah no i i mean I will always be proudly South African. Yeah, I carry that with me everywhere I go. Educated, born, raised, my family's still there, the majority of them. But yes, I'm also meant to be a world traveler. I mean, I think also growing up, I had a world globe. Mm. So I used to spin this baby around for years, just dreaming about all the places I could go. So to make that a reality is important. Yeah, that's a perfect segue. This image of spinning the globe and, mm. you know, trying to figure out where you want to travel. But of all places, you picked Taiwan. So how did this happen? You said you had heard about it, but do you remember kind of the impetus? Why Taiwan rather than any other place in the world? Well, one driving factor was I really didn't want to end up in another English speaking place. Mm. I really didn't want to be around other expats. I also I kind of wanted to avoid the neg negativity of some South Africans who've chosen to leave South Africa. I needed to also leave that behind in South Africa. Mm. So for me, Taiwan was just something really out there. And I thought, what better place to kind of challenge everything I think I know about the world. And I think when you come to a place that's so different night and day, you really get to reflect on what you want to keep from your, your upbringing and like the things that you understand about yourself and the world and your family and culture and religion and kind of really choose for yourself what sticks and what what I unlearn what, or why mm, I, I what drop. might need to go right yeah I really felt the urge to kind of rebel but also consciously choose what I was doing next instead of just having a culture or a family or a religious system dictate to me what I should do next. I don't do well with being told what to do. Mm. Um, we'll find that out throughout this episode. <laughs> <laughs> and 
yeah, I really just wanted to be mindful and conscientious of what's my own voice telling me and not the voices and opinions of other people. So at 22 years old, you get on a plane, fly out of Joburg, out yeah. of Joburg, yeah. out of Johannesburg. And where did you fly into? First into Hong Kong. And that was kind of special for me too, actually, because during my layover, I knew my late father had been to Hong Kong before. So it was like my first space that mm. was first idea of like, oh, I'm doing something he's done before. Right. And so I remember standing at the the big glass walls and kind of my nose up against, I'm like, this is what the other side of the world looks like. And my dad has seen this same thing this before. Scene. He has been here yes. in this space. Yes. That's amazing. And so that was really touching. And then coming to Taiwan and connecting with his side of the family, I felt like it was strange coming home. Like I feel like my father passed when I was 10 and I didn't know him actually before 10. I don't have mm. a memory of him. So there was really this like sense of like, I've left South Africa, but now I'm kind of... Oh, like kind of rediscovering this yes. past of yours. Yes. That you never really knew in the no. first place. No, and through my cousin, which who I'm so grateful for. And he's an older cousin, so kind of like a big brother that I never had, which is also just really comforting and special for me. So yeah, it was exhilarating. Mm. Truly, truly. I was enthralled by everything. I remember the first few days, like driving around on the back of his scooter and I'm like, how do you tell the streets apart? Right. Like it's just <laughs> lights and signs. Like, don't worry, it'll come. Cause I was like, everything looks the same. <laughs> right. And how long had he been here? He had already been here about four years, I think. Okay. At that point. Yeah. So he knew his way around. He yeah. had a scooter. That's, yeah, yeah. that's pretty Taiwanese of him. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right. Did he, how was his Chinese? Uh, not bad. Okay. I mean, basic. But again, this is also the days before smartphones, mm. before Google Maps. Right. So everywhere I went, I learned the trick of taking a name card so that I could share it to the taxi next exactly. time I would go out. <laughs> just go here. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Exactly. Right. I'd learn all the little tricks or just accept I'm going to get lost sometimes. Right. Which is part of the excitement as well. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Where did he live? Do you remember? Da Pingling. Okay. So I was that out was there too. was your first foray in Da Pingling. Da Pingling. Yeah, it was great. <laughs> yeah. Though not so great when you're trying to leave a party and you spend 20 minutes in the taxi saying the address over and over and over again in slightly different ways. Right. Trying to get him <laughs> to, to get understand. Right. <laughs> 20 minutes. And then finally he's like, oh, Da, da, da. And I'm like, that's what that's I said. That's what I said. And he's like, no. No. <laughs> so, yeah, it was challenging. There oh. were times where I'd just have to call my cousin and be like, I need you to speak to the taxi driver. I can't get home. He can't understand me at all. I guess also coming from South Africa, I was really mindful of not getting frustrated with the other person. I was like, I don't speak your language mm. and I'm a guest here. I actually still get really uncomfortable when I notice other foreigners or expats kind of getting annoyed because mm. they're not understood. Right, because you don't understand my English. Yeah, and I'm like, <laughs> no, 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 no. Mm. It's not how it works. So, you know, I would sit in that taxi for 20 minutes trying to keep my cool and just, okay, maybe if I say it this way or this way, where should the inflection go? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Um, but yeah, getting back to Dappingling after a night out was a mm. challenge. 
Yeah. Every imagine? time. Every single time. <laughs> Every time. <laughs> For how many years? Three months. For because three then months, I moved okay. into Shitta. So I was like, oh, at least I'm central now. Right. <laughs> okay. So you move into this college town, college neighborhood mm. of Shitta. Mm. And you start working as well. Yes. Okay. Yeah, the first year is pretty much first job at three different branches, running around the city. And so then you were you, teaching English. I was teaching English, okay. yes, at Aboshiban. And really, it's my first time. I was also grateful because I remember that first demo interview I did with this, mm. with this woman. She was like, sorry, it's a new branch, so we don't have teachers. You need to demo in front of me. And I was like, okay. So she's like, I'll pretend I'm the student. And I'm like, oh, this is very awkward. Okay, here <laughs> yeah. we go. Mm -hmm. So we did it. Bless her. She was like, I like your attitude. I was like, thanks. <laughs> she's like, Let, let's do this. She's like, I'm new to running a bushy bun. You're a new teacher, but I like your energy. So let's do this. I was like, great. So that's how I got my first gig. And she put me up at three different branches, which at the time I didn't realize was technically illegal. Right. So I was running between three different schools. But uh, I really got to see from Zhonghe to Ban Chao to Sindian. I was just on the bus getting around as much as possible with very little Mandarin. And exactly. <laughs> And taking public transportation yes, all yes. around the city. Yeah, and no Google Maps, no right. smartphone, right? So <laughs> you make friends with the bus driver. I stand right in the front right. <laughs> so he can Don't motion me. <laughs> to me. It's this stop. Exactly, you know, and I just jump the, off. Yeah, you learn all the tricks. So yeah, the first year you really do work out what age, what level, what neighborhood, what kind of school actually suits you or not. Mm. So after that first year, I was like, eh, less of this. Let's look for something else. And then I dove into preschool, like kindergarten. And I got my first job at a really great school here in Da'an. But there I had 18 to 23 three-year-olds. And I'd not taught such young kids before. And I remember also calling my mom and I was like, I don't know if I can do this. I'm only like 23 years old. Like, mm. can I, can I do this? <laughs> I'm not even a mom, you know? Right. And my mom's best advice, actually, and I've used this at all open days with parents ever since. My mom said to me, as long as they're safe and happy and they feel loved by you, they will learn, Anya. Mm, and I've that's great applied that every single year to the classroom. I will guarantee that your children feel safe and happy and loved. And I promise you, they will learn it's 18 years later. And that really still does work. It still stands to be true. So, yeah, I did a year of that, which was also a crazy schedule like eight in the morning until seven in the evening oh wow um until i also burnt out there yeah. because i was like okay no it's a lot of hours yeah <laughs> and then i found something in between which is where i stayed for the next 14 years right <laughs> oh wow but teaching i feel like it came naturally i love children i i truly do and being able to be that special in between place and person for them feels really good for me mm. um and to really, you can actually see the results of the time and effort you put into a kid. It feels really great. And staying at one company for... 14. For 14 years. Yes. That's pretty remarkable in and of itself. Yes. 
So I, I worked at a great school called Big Bite Education. Right. The CEO there has become a good friend and mentor to me. Mm. I am quite grateful. She saw something in me too, where, you know, over time gave me more projects, more responsibilities, more things to do. And my skill and my confidence really just increased both inside the classroom and outside. So mm. whether it was program development or producing huge productions for graduation shows, so writing and making props and stage stuff, HR, hiring, teacher training, I really got to expand and also become a manager there. So mm. that was great to have somebody believe in me and to really put my creativity and my you know ownership into something and to have it valued. I'm still grateful for that. And in that safe space, I was able to, you know, with this consistent job and environment, I was also now able to finally spread my wings in Taiwan a bit more mm. and explore all kinds of creativity, which I guess we will get to. Oh, okay, good. <laughs> You were waiting for me to lead into yeah, it. Right. I was like, <laughs> exactly. Uh, yeah. We'll let you spread your wings in a minute. Okay, do it. <laughs> so, what about education? How much mm. change have you seen in those 14 years? Oh, a lot. Yeah. I realized over time that the bridge between, you know, the Western approach and style of teaching with the Asian one is not something you can just bridge overnight. Mm, right. And it's a steady process of small little gains and you have to meet somewhere in the middle. So I've seen a lot of pushback, you know, from mm. both sides, new teachers coming in and then they have an opinion of how things should be run. And I'm like, you got to pick your battles and mm. it's a slow process. But I was really impressed by the school's ability to kind of pivot each year just a little bit more, mm. introduce new things to kind of keep them ahead of the game, whether it's student-based learning, not so much teacher-centered, PBL, project-based mm. learning, international trips that are uh, service-based, service learning. I was able to pitch to international trips to South Africa, Ooh. which they actually went on one. Oh, uh, wow. She had never taken kids abroad to South Africa, but I managed to pull that one off. How and, many students went? Do you, um, do you know? I think it was four or five in okay. the end. I didn't get to take them, unfortunately, but for the students to go and have the most incredible experience, they actually went on two trips. So mm. that was great. I've seen a lot of minor shifts, but I see now people are trying to catch up, you know, whether it's uh, social emotional learning, whether it's, you know, embracing creativity a bit more, project-based learning, kind mm. of giving kids more ownership, trying to move away from rote learning. It's happening, but it's really hard. I, and I understand the reluctance by both teachers and families and even kids, older kids, because, you know, everybody agrees change needs to happen. Yes. But then when you ask everybody, okay, so who's going to change? Nobody raises their hand. Right. And how? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I am impressed. I'm optimistic that these things will happen. I mean, worldwide, it all needs to shift. There's a lot of fault with the Western way too. I'm not punting the, the Western approach, but mm. we need a, a middle ground that is student-centered and doesn't neglect creativity or the self, self-awareness and empathy, the soft skills mm -hmm. that actually I think should be called the hard skills. Mm -hmm. um, because if you don't really grasp 
empathy, compassion, a self-awareness from a young age, it's really hard to pick that up at a later age, stage of life. Exactly. Um, You know, if you think of the skills that are needed for the 21st century, this is what companies say they need. Teamwork, collaboration, creativity, innovation. Those are soft skills that need to be practiced. But because there's not a textbook for them, it's not something you can qualify and, Mm. you know, actually put on paper. There's a reluctance to teach kids that. So I'm actually a board member uh, of a great organization called Know My World. And specifically, they work on creating workshops for both teachers, parents, and kids that are social, emotional, and cultural learning and awareness. So we're trying to go into the schools, offer workshops on the weekend, do kind of sound healing or creative things to really promote getting in touch with ourselves, especially after COVID. I think these kinds of ways off the screen, you know, self-soothing, mindfulness, breathing, ways to kind of manage mental health issues are essential. So I'm really happy, even though I've left a traditional classroom, it feels good to be still working in education in line with my values and my skill set. Last time you mentioned that this No My World is based out of New York, New York City. Yes, one of the co-founders is in New York okay. and here and, and the other co-founder is here in Taipei, Genevieve Murphy. I see. Okay. So the programming is here in Taiwan or yes. pretty much all around the world? Yes, yes. Okay. So they also do a responsible digital citizenship program, which is like a online exchange program between like four different classrooms at a time and kids kind of interact, answer prompts, journal prompts, work on an online journal or make a little comic journal imagery and uh, then share that with other classrooms around the world, other cultures and learn about each other that way. Okay, so you've stepped out of the classroom, but still definitely having one foot in the education space. Totally. I think I I always I always will be for Mm. sure. So what about your biggest challenges during this time? working in education here in Taiwan? The biggest challenges, I mean, I'm happy right now to be able to still be in education, being able to do a kids art class, being able to do a conversational kind of also SEL um, life skills with junior high kids is great. I think right now is just trying to find more people who actually want that. Mm. Um, Obviously, Working outside of a classroom, outside of a school has a financial impact, but I don't really want to compromise by just letting that be the reason why I walk back into a classroom. So right now it's really just, I want to spread the mission of social emotional learning and cultural awareness, both inside and outside the classroom. That right now is my main challenge and mission is to spread this awareness and hopefully let it gain more momentum. Because I think coming back to the soft skills, I think if we're not able to develop these skills from a young age or even later on in life, we're going to really suffer when the world changes and shifts as it is already. And we have new problems that we've never faced. How do you come up with solutions? We've got AI and we've got climate change and we have all these things, but um, we're going to still need to work together and come up with some creative ways of dealing with a world that we have no way of knowing what it's going to look like Mm -hmm. exactly and i want to be optimistic about it (laughs) right (laughs) let's let's be optimistic i am i am (laughs) 
So speaking of these kind of changes, right, and shifts in in our society and the zeitgeist and all of these things, what about Taiwan in general? You know, having seen Taiwan kind of change so much over so many years, what are the biggest kind of memories for you of your early days here in Taiwan compared to now? I think the most standout shift that I've seen is definitely the the acceptance. I mean, obviously there are groups of people who don't, but just the wholeheartedness towards the LGBTQ community. I remember first attending Gay Pride in the early years, and there was just a couple of thousand people. And to see it now as like a hundred thousand strong, <laughs> if not more, in 2020, I think it was 120,000 people, warms my heart so much. So just to see this openness now and this broader acceptance and awareness and just compassion. We don't need the understanding. We don't need the acceptance. We just want to live our lives, mm. right? To see that really grow over time is one of the best things I've seen. Also, I guess, I don't know, it's just little cultural things noticing. I remember being like so self-conscious if my shoulders were showing when I first arrived. I was like, oh, I better have a right. sleeved. Be a little more conservative and yeah. cover I mean, up it's a, a little bit. Shoulder. <laughs> but uh, How dare you? Yeah. But seeing all these, uh, I mean, they would never show their shoulders, but you could wear the shortest shorts. Of I course. Like, yes. <laughs> I, I would flip that, you know, right. from where I'm from. Right. Um, seeing all these little minor shifts, whether it's fashion or just general body confidence, mm. I think. I remember walking around night markets in the beginning and I'll be just looking at an item of clothing and the woman would say to me, oh, we don't have XL. Oh, wow. Was, okay. <laughs> um, wow. So yeah, different things, yeah, shifting over time. Um, I, I remember doing an infomercial when I was younger and I was cast as the large fat girl, um, oh. which I thought was also, I mean, it definitely gave me a bit of like a neuroticism. I'm like, am I that big? Right. And then each time I would go home or somewhere else, I'm like, I'm pretty like average. So seeing these things shift as well, the language, not just being pointed out like a pimple on your face, like what's that? Right. Or you got fat or, you know, you're too brown. Mm. Uh, little things shift and change. I think also definitely Taiwanese in general being a bit more uh, welcoming and accepting of other races, mm. in particular black people. Mm -hmm. I've seen that shift and change too. I know some friends who had very negative experiences and now to see other friends really thriving here as a person of color, I think says a lot for where the society has progressed and moved. It's amazing to be able to see that timeline and that trajectory. Mm. Um, I think there's just better and more food yes. <laughs> options mm -hmm. too. Um, I remember when there was only like one place that had like a burger or a Western brunch or something like that. And now there's a plethora of them and coffee shops everywhere mm. before it was just the Starbucks or right. something, right? <laughs> yep. The arts as well here. I feel like the art scene has really exploded. And seeing that from somebody who used to be a performer too, mm. it's 
to uh, to seeing now what's happening on stage and in the music and the arts and film is just mind blowing because things used to be pretty conservative mm, before, mm-hmm. and now the standard is just incredibly high. <laughs> I think that's a perfect segue into the arts. You <laughs> just hinted that you were a performer as mm. well. Can you get into that? When did you perform? What kind of arts did you do? I started out. I never thought I would do it. Oh, I was capable of doing it, but I did burlesque. Burlesque. Can you explain that for those who may not know? Well, most people, when they think of burlesque, they think of like Dita Von Teese, which is fantastic reference point. She's kind of your classical burlesque. So it's kind of a provocative dance with a lot of props and usually removal of items of clothing. Mm. We were at the time, our burlesque troupe, we were rock in hose. So we always had beautiful colored tights on, stockings, that kind of hose. But we loved the double entendre of it, rock in hose. Right. We would, I guess, what you would classify as neo-burlesque, which is kind of outside of the box. It's not just about the classic beauty or the classic look. It was kind of anything you want. Pushing those boundaries. Pushing it. Um, Yes. We were four girls and some gay boys. And uh, we started it because, quite honestly, we were tired of being overlooked. I don't want to make this about, you know, the dating life for white women in Taiwan. <laughs> that'll, we be all a, know. that'll be another episode. Yeah, it's a totally, <laughs> a, completely other episode. Uh, but pretty much we were just frustrated and we were like, we've got something to say. There's nobody else except there was a cool band called Go Chic, a Taiwanese band. And they were female. And I was like that's hot and that's cool and Mm. why aren't more women on stage and so alita and i decided hey let's give this a whirl who could we ask to join us and we got on marika and kathleen and tinas and max and uh, we decided let's do rock and hose however we want because there's nobody here and actually there was one other burlesque troupe for a while they were based in hualien called the lust sluts Lust Lots from Hualien. From Hualien. And actually, I only saw them perform twice, I think. But their first one, I was gobsmacked, like jaw on the floor. I remember like a real little groupie like went over to one of the girls, Sarah, afterwards. And I was like, I want to do what you do. Tell me how to do what you do. Like, this is the best thing I think I've ever seen in my life. Was this in Um, Taipei or in Hualien? In Taipei. Yeah, they just came up for a show. It kind of came from there. And I think I remember going to Alita and I was like, I think we can do this. Let's do it. Let's do it. And she was like, yeah. So our first performance or my first performance, not as a troupe yet, was one of the Halloweens. I think this was 2007. Didn't go quite as well as I hoped. (laughs) It's best uh, forgotten. And uh, luckily, there wasn't social media back then. Exactly. There's like two like actual photographs and nothing else. I almost was deterred. It it went. It went that not well. Yeah. (laughs) But luckily, Alida is a a driving force of a human being. And she was like, don't give up. Let's Let's just do this again. And I was like, okay. Why did it go uh, so bad? 
Uh, I drank too much beforehand. Oh, I yeah, I was really nervous. Okay. And so I drank too much. You know, I didn't have the concept of when you've had too much to drink. And actually, when you're also on stage, you know, a number you've rehearsed over and over and mm. over again goes by way faster. Right. Than exactly. You're when nervous. you're rehearsing. So mm. I, I was convinced, <laughs> convinced that the DJ cut my song. And so I argued with him too. Oh. And he's like, I didn't cut your song. I was like, no, you did. That was over way too fast. <laughs> <laughs> little, little novice thing. That's amazing. Um, but yeah, I luckily didn't give up. And uh, from there, we performed with this amazing rockabilly band called The Deadly Vibes. And they had a show in Taichung. Or was it Shinju? I can't remember the first one, but they had a show called Rock and Roll Circus. And so we created all our first acts around a circus theme. Ooh. And Rock and Hose was born. We went and performed. With the band. With the band. And uh, our second gig was Spring Scream. Mm, no way. <laughs> Back in the day. Yeah. And what yeah. is Spring Scream? Can you explain that? Spring Scream is those who've lived here long enough will remember the spring long break the long holiday spring break yep the mm -hmm. four day weekend three day weekend everybody would go to kending mm. and camp <laughs> and there would be at least four or five stages and it's just bands this is even before djs were right. playing music the live music scene early years of taiwan was phenomenal mm. i mean we would follow like seven or eight bands like Oh my God, I'd know their own original songs by word and just have to run and try and get to every stage to see every band that I wanted to see. Yeah, we were allowed as this brand new burlesque troupe to get up on stage. And I remember people's faces. What are these women doing? Um you know, we did a play on Jimi Hendrix, Purple Haze. Yes. Ours was called Purple Rage. Purple so, Rage. And we were two girls dressed as clowns who get into a fight. And so we had pre-cut our shirts and pants. So as we fight, we rip each Start other's clothes off. off. Right. And then we pick up our little fake guitars and then... And just rock out. Rock Jimi out Hendrix to the style. end. Yeah. Yeah, or we made like a kind of like a Zorba. We played the song Zorba and we all had striped socks on our arms and on our legs and kind of made this moving sex machine with all these parts <laughs> to Zorba. It goes faster and faster and faster. No way. Um, yeah, we, we did uh, a sword swallowing act, which is... Duke Vita, who now goes by Bouncy Babs, behind a shower curtain with a backlight, who so would see the shadow, would take an immense cucumber or carrot and pretend to, to swallow, swallow it. the whole thing. Yes. So we really just had a lot of fun on wow. stage and made a lot of fun of our dating lives and our non-existent sex lives <laughs> and... Uh, just generally, I don't know, it became like therapy, huh. you know, burlesque therapy, we would call it because we would meet up with each other three times a week to make props, to stitch together our own outfits, to go shopping for things, to rehearse. And so it became right. therapy. Complain about everyday life and then it turns into a skit or yes. turns into material, basically. Totally. 
Just totally. like comedians. Yeah. Right, right, right. And yeah, a leader was our driving force behind getting us gigs. I was like producer in terms of like keeping things organized, the props, the show rundowns. The cucumbers. Um, the cucumbers. Yeah. I mean, we once left a cucumber at a venue overnight and came back and realized, I think you shrunk. guys have a rat problem because this... <laughs> It ate through this whole bag of props. Even like clothing had rat bites. Oh, no yeah. way. Anyway, that's a separate story. <laughs> um, yeah, we, we had to perform in so many different spaces. Sometimes the kitchen was flooded, so there would be water on the floor or we're standing behind a tiny little, sh like just a slight cover and we have to adapt. Sometimes the venue didn't even have four walls and you realize, oh, the people from the street can see us. Okay. Okay. Let's maybe adapt just a little bit for this, this particular show. Right. Uh, some people who, or some audiences that were completely unresponsive, some people that were too responsive. Oh. So, you know, luckily we had a good friend sometimes who is the DJ, DJ Marcus Aurelius, and he nice would kind of always look out for us like, hey, hands off, you know, or just kind of give a little rules breakdown. Don't grab the woman. But really, actually, to be honest, our best supporters were other women. Mm. Um, and I'm really proud of that too, because, you know, we were all different ages. We we're all different sizes and shapes. And I think that really spoke to a lot of our audience members and the women there. Because women would come to us all the time and be like, can I do burlesque? And I'm like, yeah, that's the point. Mm. Anybody can do it. Oh, but I don't know how I feel about it. I'm like, you take on or off as much as you like. You don't have to follow a script or a way of doing this. So I think it was really empowering. I mean, maybe too much so because it was really hard to get a date during that time. <laughs> <laughs> you were too powerful. I think so. You know, Know? And yeah, I actually remember I went on two dates with one guy and then he called it off and I was like, can you tell me why? Like, mm. what's the deal? I'd like to know. You're not right. the first. So I want to know. <laughs> can what, I get what some the, feedback? Yeah, please. please. <laughs> he was like, I don't know, Anya, you know, like, you know, if you were my girlfriend, like I'm not comfortable with you doing burlesque, like being on stage. You also come on really strong. <laughs> And uh, you're bisexual, so I'm, you know, your sexuality is a bit confusing. And I was like, you just described all the best things about me. <laughs> so I was like, okay. All right. You're fine. lost. Yeah. Maybe, you know, go find less or raise your standards a little. Right. I don't know. You, you choose. But uh, yeah, I think burlesque, rock and hose really helped me to step into my own. That kind of expression, that kind of creativity, the thinking out of the box, that kind of work with what you got. If I imagine doing it now, but thinking of what the performances we see on stage now with drag and stuff, I'm mm. like... Oh no, like it's really kind of like DIY what we were doing. Mm. Um, I would almost be a little embarrassed, but you were paving the path. I think so. Yeah. To to some degree. Yeah. I mean, it was there weren't many, right? Mm. So you were just figuring it out as you were going along. Totally. Like literally paving a path. No, most people right. had never even seen burlesque. So right. All our stuff was nonverbal too, or we'll make little signs with a bit of Chinese and English and just talk about safe sex, talk about women's rights, gay rights. Those are kind of our general themes. And I have to shout out the highlight of that was performing at Gay Pride. 
when yes and that was still like 30,000 people and that was for sure my 15 minutes of fame and glory like I'd never felt anything more just like ran through my body when that first beat of the song played and the audience roared it was just goosebumps all over me so which gay pride is this which year this was 2009 2009 gay pride taipei yeah wow yeah oh it was incredible so where did you perform Outside the the parliamentary buildings. Oh, no way. Yeah, yeah. Daylight, not at night. Afternoon, smoke machine. I actually got burnt because I was sitting over the hole. (laughs) I didn't know. You were (laughs) sitting over the... Yeah, I got a perfectly round blister on the back of my thigh because I was like in position. Just smoking up your thigh. Yeah. And That's so, pretty badass, actually. Yeah, and we danced, and oh, it was just what was the crowd like? Fantastic. How many people? Thirty thousand. Thirty thousand people. Yeah, just screaming out there. Yes, and for a cause that you know is extremely close to my heart. Right. Um. I mean, I technically I wasn't even out yet uh, mm. to myself at that point, but I was always in the community, but I hadn't even yet accepted it fully as part of my identity. Oh, wow. Yeah. Okay. So that was yeah, pretty awesome. So that was the highlight of this kind of career yeah. in burlesque. Yeah, it was really, really, really lovely. But, you know, all good things kind of run their mm. course. It kind of also evolved because we were able to invite other performers to perform with us and collaborate a bit more with other people. So we eventually, our last two shows, we had a host, we had a life drawing, we had a ukulele player, we had different other people like fillers in between. So we didn't have to, you know, rotate, you know, as the next act, next act, Mm. you know, so back to back. You're kind of creating like this full variety show in a lot of ways it did become a variety show and uh yeah and the last one was like the best show like it was like a flawless one no technical issues no nothing and that's the only show we never recorded oh and it was our last one no receipts we still did it at uh, a taipei artist village yeah that was really nice filled it out we sold out those last two shows oh no way there must be video out there somewhere yeah, there's if someone some has photos. It, send, us, send it in. Yeah, <laughs> I'll I'll send you a couple of pictures. Yeah, I'm really oh, proud. Nice. It was great. And then we split. And then it's just been a couple of once-off gigs, either duets. I did have a one-time new troupe called Metaphysique Burlesque, and mm. we performed at Tiger Mountain for one of the Urban Nomad festivals. That was pretty awesome. That was a different group of women. And then Red Room. I've done some shows at Red Room, but not as Rock and Hose. But yeah, Rock and Hose will always be close to my heart close to your your thighs your yes. burnt thighs yes my burnt thighs <laughs> exactly my smoking thighs your I smoking <laughs> thighs exactly so this is in the meanwhile you're teaching english yes right i felt like a double life that sounds like a double life it kind like a of completely was. double life it was that's amazing i just kept in the back of my mind i was like look if my mom doesn't mind what I'm doing, then I'm not going to hide it. Mm. I'm not going to advertise it, but uh, it's there. If anybody wanted to look, it was there. But yes, it was. I was like 
preschool teacher by day, burlesque performer by night. You know, really enjoy. A lot of the same skills anyway. You know, totally. Right? Yeah. yeah. You just got to keep them entertained and yeah. full of love. and Yeah, feel happy and safe and loved. Exactly. Um, yeah, and teaching life skills of mm-hmm. self-expression, consent, gay rights, women's rights, wow. uh, body autonomy, body positivity, sex positivity. My, my stage name actually is Onyx. Onyx. I chose Onyx because we all have our shadow side, right? Mm. Most people, I feel, are too scared to actually acknowledge their shadow. And that's actually where a lot of your gold is. And so for me during that time, you know, also, you know, not dating and actually being celibate during the early days of burlesque, it really was an outlet for me to still embrace and not lose touch with my sexuality. Mm. Um, There's nothing to be ashamed of. So, yeah, I think being a kindergarten teacher and a burlesque (laughs) performer, we are promoting these kinds of positive messages that that weren't mainstream back then, right. for sure. I feel like they've become more mainstream, thank goodness. Mm. Um, but back then it was kind of not really heard of. I mean, before social media. <laughs> right, 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 exactly. Huh, so what happened after this burlesque? After the burlesque, I really focused a bit more on my career, Mm. uh, my skills at that time. And really, I started a long distance relationship. Did that for... So the dry spell came to an end. Yeah, I mean, (laughs) when you're in a long distance relationship... (laughs) Oh, uh, it's still a little bit dry. (laughs) It's just a little bit dry, right? And uh, But lovely, lovely, fell in love, you know, and really just focused on the time I would get to see Tom every three to five months and eventually making the decision, hey, we kind of want to be in the same place. So I'll take the risk. I'll play my hand. I'll be all in and I will move to Germany. Okay. So this Mm. is the two-year hiatus, the intermission that I alluded to in the introduction. Mm -hmm. You move to Germany. I moved after how many years in Taiwan at this point? 13 years. 13 years. Yeah. How difficult or easy was that decision at that time? The decision was not easy to make. And actually, in hindsight, you know, hindsight is 2020, mm. especially in 2020. <laughs> um, back then, I'd also been living, so I'd had the same job for over a decade. I'd lived with my best friend for over a decade. I knew something had to change. I knew I'd like reached kind of like a like a plateau and and I was like, and I don't know how to leave it. Like I'm so comfortable, but my comfort is kind of like suffocating. Stifling me. and yeah. suffocating, right. And so in a strange way, I feel like the move to Germany was the change I had to make because I didn't know how to make it in Taiwan. Mm. I didn't know how to, how do you move out from your best friend or after a decade? How do I leave the comfort of a school that's given me all this opportunity and not knowing or not having the faith or the confidence that I can step into another similar role? Maybe this woman, my mentor has just been doing me a favor you know, I was really, really scared. And so in a way, moving to Germany and making that decision was a way to really shift out. Kind of shock your system in a lot of ways. Yeah, I know I'm brave and I know I can kind of do it. But uh, I also realized 
pretty soon, about a year into my time in Berlin, that I'd given more, I'd given more up than I'd actually realized. And I was having a identity crisis, an existential one. On top of that, losing my community and my sense of self in a job or even with, you know, friends in the community, um, my roles that I could rely on and turn to and the people. I mean, it was three big life changes rolled into one move, change country, change career and get married mm. all at once. Those are huge life milestones. Yeah. Usually all in the same year. Yes. Usually we give a little gap to uh, no. acclimate, but you just, as always, go head first. Head first. Um, yeah, so unfortunately, yeah, it didn't last very long. It, it was about a year, year and a half before you just realized this is really hard. I think I've given up way too much. Mm. I didn't feel like an equal exchange of... How soon after moving to Germany did you feel like this? I mean, I was committed. I mean, I'd made the decision to be married, which is also a decision I did not take lightly. I was 36 when I got married. I think I was more scared of getting divorced than I was even of being married. Mm. But being married was pretty scary. But I was like, now that I'm married, I cannot get divorced. Mm. Right. So I was really gung-ho, but I also realized after five years already of being in a monogamous, long-term, straight, uh, heterosexual relationship, realizing that part of my shadow, part of my gold is that I am queer. And I'd given that up. I was playing out a role. And for a while, I thought that role would lead to great things, mm. but it is a role. It's not an authentic version of myself. I wanted to be the good wife. I wanted to make sure the house was nice. And the strangest thing happened was like as Onyx in Burlesque, I always parodied a 1950s housewife mm. most often. And I remember one day sweeping and vacuuming and loading up the dishwasher. <laughs> and I was like, I've become my burlesque character. <laughs> How have I become what I used to make fun of? Like, this is ridiculous. No way. And uh, because I also struggled to find a full-time job in Berlin, I was at home a lot. And my, my ex-husband had a fancy engineering job and there was no equality anymore. If anything, I became dependent and I just spiraled. I was trying my best to learn Hochdeutsch, but I was surrounded by Bavarians who speak Bayerisch. Mm. And uh, I was like, this is just not working out for me. I'm struggling to find a job. I've spent all my savings. The relationship dynamic is slowly but surely tilted in a direction that I don't like. I've realized I'm not, I'm like half a version of me. I have to like censor myself so that I don't make my husband look bad or, you know, I don't want him. I don't know. I started deferring every decision, every thought. I couldn't hear my own thoughts and uh, I became really depressed, mm. uh, really, really, really depressed. And then just around about that time, COVID hit. <laughs> so oh my I lost my work. And um, around that time, my ex also just said, I'm not actually in love with you anymore. Oh, no way. <laughs> he drops that bomb yes. as the world gets a bomb. Yeah. So I was like, well, I thought I'm suffering for love. But if the love is not there, then why am I suffering, suffering for? for? 
What right. am I doing? So as the world shut down, mine imploded. I groveled, like I hit rock bottom. It was rock bottom. <laughs> and then a slow, I mean, I groveled for a couple of months, you know, because I really, that was the worst thing. I was like, I can't, we've barely been married two years. Right. Oh my God, I've like totally failed. How embarrassing. And then my, my ego, everything just horrified. What have I done wrong? Am I unlovable? Am I hard to love? Am I unworthy? All of these horrible existential crises mm. just flooding my brain. Just really realizing like I'm not okay. Like I, in the end, I was like, I'm going to have to do the one thing I don't want to do, which is go home. And then I was like, I'm not going to stay in Germany, even though I fought tooth and nail and all the legal and paperwork and the money on the German lessons and everything to be here. I can't mm. stay here. I'm going to go home and Taiwan is home. It feels like a big hug. And at that time, Taiwan was this COVID free island. Bubble, right. And I was like, that's where I want to go. And my previous boss had reached out to me out of the blue and offered me my old job back, actually a better position. Oh, no way. And I was like, well, I'm out of cash. There's lockdown here in Berlin. My marriage is on the rocks and my whole family and community are there in Taiwan. I'm going to go back. And in your darkest moment and you get this message from your old boss. Yeah. Out of the blue. I mean, I still asked her when I came back, I'm like, what made you send me that email? I hadn't heard from you in like over a year. And she said, for whatever reason, Anya, for two weeks, I thought of you every single day until one day I was like, let me just write you an email and find out if you're okay. Wow. And I was like, well, you literally saved my life. Right. <laughs> you gave me a way out because I was just about to start a new kind of shitty job that I was very unhappy about starting because what I'd wanted to do, which is dive into like a hypnotherapy program and course was poo-pooed by my, my ex for being too woo-woo. And he was mm. too embarrassed because I can't tell people that my wife does hypnotherapy right as an um, engineer yeah right so i was i'd given that up very sadly because i wanted to save the marriage at the time and then i just thought i'm not being me <laughs> mm. i'm doing all these things in the hopes that you'll you'll choose me again but i need to choose me I, I have to choose me. It's it's now or never. Like, go home. It feels like a tail between your legs. But, man, <laughs> I cannot. It felt like a new lease on life. What if that email hadn't come at that time? I think. What were you thinking? What kind of place were you in? And, you know, did you have other options? Or were you really kind of like at the end of your. I lived on the 15th floor. And I remember thinking. I need to get away from this balcony. Um, I'm not wow. okay. I'm not okay. And the crying, nightmares, constant nightmares. My body, I started getting styes. I was grinding my teeth while sleeping. I was having like all these bodily issues. Mm. And I actually remember once like sitting up in bed just suddenly, like my mind, like monkey mind going, going, going. And I was like, I have to leave. Like I, wow. I'm, I, I, I can't 
stay. I'm sick. I'm not right. okay. If I don't listen to all these other messages now. I mean, everything, every part of you, every part no. of the universe telling you like. Yeah. Just you go. It's okay. Like screw your ego. Right. <laughs> and so. I was also able to see a friend in France just before I left, which also really, really helped me, like reminded me of who I am and what I stand for and what I'm capable of. And uh, that, that friend really... is tied to a very in interesting coincidence. You told me this story about a very interesting coincidence in, yes, in, in Germany, in Berlin. Yeah. Can you tell that story? It's pretty amazing. Sure. Yeah, so I met Rafa 12 years ago, 2011. I only met him by chance too because I'd met his brother while traveling in 2010. So I'd met Jordi traveling. Months later, a few months back in Taiwan, Jordi contacted me and said, hey, Rafa and I are waiting for visas to India. We're in Hong Kong. Can we come to Taipei and hang out with you? So I met Rafa. I had a great two weeks with the two brothers and me and my best friend. Rafa and I have been in touch ever since. And, uh, the beauty of that was that I had not seen Raf in more than 10 years since that first time, that first visit in Taiwan. Mm. I know they, the brothers have a sister who I'd never met. She lives in Belgium. So a short time while living in Berlin, I had a great, beautiful, awesome job working at the private collection, the Foiler collection. Mm. Beautiful, immaculate space. If you've never been, please go check out the Foiler collection. Mm. So I would guide visitors and groups of people through there. And I remember being there one Sunday, oh, Saturday, staring at this beautiful woman, striking woman. And the more I looked at her, and I'm also trying not to stare, but uh, I couldn't take my eyes off her. And I was like, no, no. And I can like hear, okay, she speaks English. And then I hear, oh, she's also speaking a bit of Spanish. And then I'm like, no. So I like do my job and I try to keep like a distance while like, you know, everybody's looking at the art pieces and I wait right until the end and I walk over to her and I'm like, are you Myra? And she looked at me and she said, are you Anya? <laughs> and I was like, so she is Jordi and Raf's sister. They have different mothers, same father. And Jordi and Raf actually look very, very different, but she is a combination of their two faces and features. No Jordi's way. features, but Rafa's dark hair and dark skin and dark eyes. And, and you could see that. And I could see it in her. You saw your two friends' faces in this one woman who you had heard of. Yep. But you would have no inkling that she would be there in Berlin. No, yeah, because she lives in Belgium. And right. she just happened to be there the day I worked. And I happened to recognize her. Oh, my goodness. And that was also just like. And she knew your name, too. And she knew my name. She's like, <laughs> I was like, you know me? She's like, yes, yes. I know who I've you are. I've heard about you. <laughs> yeah. So. Um, you are Onyx. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> if only everybody called me Onyx. Right. <laughs> um, yeah. So that was really just one of those magical moments where, you know, after feeling so lost and kind of uh, nameless and forgotten in this big city of Berlin after being a somebody here in a sense, you know, mm. to have that moment, I was like, okay, I'm not forgotten. You know, there's still things lining up. There's still magic at play. I can still be woo-woo, you mm. know, it's still a part of me. So I got to see Raf 
also just before I left Europe, I was like, I'm not leaving Europe. You're like literally next door. I'm not leaving until I see you. I haven't seen you in 10 years. So I I took the time to go and I'd never been so excited to. In Paris? No, not in Paris. More in the countryside close to Lyon. Oh, nice. But just exhilarating to like, just choose me. I was like, I didn't ask for permission. I was like, I'm going, you know, I was done by then Mm -hmm. trying to keep the relationship or the marriage even kill. I was like, no, (laughs) I'm over this. Yeah. So that was also just a really good grounding experience before launching myself back to Taiwan. I don't know when I'll be next back in Europe. Right. So I did that for myself just before. And then went back to Taiwan. And came, came back, back to, to Taiwan. Taiwan. <laughs> and uh, I promise you, I feel like I feel like something happened. That was 2020, right? So right. I came back September 2020. Everything just has changed. I feel like I woke up. I feel like I got to make the change. I mean, for the first few months, obviously, bless my best friend's heart. I was like, do you mind if I move back in for a few months? You know, but then I had that strange realization. I was like, have I ever left? I'm living in the same house. I'm going the same route back to the same job. On the same street, you said. Yeah, on the same street. And I'm like, did I ever go to Berlin? Like, this is just like a time warp. So after three months, I got my own apartment. Also on the same street. Yeah, same street (laughs) in Shaddaa as my first one in 2005. Right. And yeah, it's just been a slow process. I mean, that first year back was kind of messy. I'm not going to lie. I was all over the place and I obviously did not want to really deal with my grief. Mm. I just wanted to be sociable, be out, party, dance. Man, I wanted to just dance all the time because things had been in lockdown for so long in Germany. Right. I was like, I need to move my body. I need to find my voice again. I want to start talking again because I'd stopped talking in Berlin and I'm a talker. So, yeah, the first year was a little messy. I'm not going to (laughs) lie. I think... If I'm honest, you know, some of my actions were also a little bit hurtful and a little maybe perhaps very inconsiderate at times Mm. because I was just kind of flailing for a bit. I mean, it wasn't intentional. I wasn't trying to mess with people. But I think after just being so disappointed and kind of trying to bounce back as fast as possible, I was a little bit reckless. But after that first year, I kind of crashed again kind of hit another, a different rock bottom. (laughs) But that rock bottom, I think, was the good kind because now I had my own space, a happy, beautiful rooftop garden that I've made to be completely my own. And I had enough income and support. I knew I was secure. I knew now it was the time to really give myself the time and space to go experience the dark night of the soul as it were, and uh, dive into therapy, dive into the things that inspire me, my own woo-woo, my own magic, my own sense of spirituality without the shame, without the judgment or without thinking that I need anybody else's like approval and finding the right people, different groups of people and different individuals that can help foster and build that up together with me. So really that's now been the last two years. Like it was hard those first few months of the dark 
night, um, I realized I also had to leave my job that I'd loved for so long because that comfort, it was the last piece that was still exactly the same as before was my job. Wow. And so I made the decision a year ago to leave that beautiful, comfortable space and venture out as a freelancer. Pretty terrifying. I mean, divorced, I'm queer, I'm a freelancer and uh, realizing, yeah, I've just turned 40 and I got nothing left to lose, you know, I don't dive into the true authentic experience of who I am when. Because I came to the realization that I think my marriage, the want to be chosen so desperately, this one for emotional security, physical security, even financial security, thinking that that was going to come from somebody else and kind of giving my power away to that other person and realizing that actually my ultimate security is my authenticity and that I'm responsible and I'm capable of giving myself those things. Mm. Um, And if there's somebody else who wants to be there with me, that's an added bonus, but I can't give my power away and I need to not let myself be defined by the people I'm in relationship with, Mm. lose myself in the relationship. Was this your first time doing therapy? Yes. Well, long ago as an upset teenager, yes, Mm. but that was different. So this is my first chosen therapy with a lovely man. If you're looking for alternative therapy that's affordable, he's in South Africa. It is online, but I really like him. He calls himself a sense maker. So he speaks a lot in metaphor and storytelling and kind of using parables and kind of mythology and archetypes to kind of help you make sense of what's happening to you. Mm. So he's quite alternative in that sense. Peter Woods, I think he's really, he's been an integral part of my healing. I still speak to him bi-weekly. I don't think I'll ever give him up Mm. (laughs) Um, because we do, it's very Jungian based. um, Carl Jung. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, like archetypal, but he also, Peter himself has a, a history of being part of the church. He was a pastor for 30 years and gave that up in his own search for meaning and mm. his own discovery of self. So he has this way of talking. And I feel like he's helped me remember that actually that's one of my gifts too, is being able to communicate and connect and have compassion for others who are going through pain because I think I'm the right kind of fucked up to help people, mm, you know? Um, the right kind of fucked up to help people. I totally, totally. And <laughs> there's nothing about my timeline, my life story that I will ever be shamed or embarrassed or guilted about ever again. Mm. Um, I have better boundaries now than I've ever had. I'm able to actually pay attention, like realize now when my body, my nervous system is speaking to me, um, realizing all those times I was ignoring my body, those nightmares, the teeth grinding, the styes in my eye, these pains, the stomach issues. I was out of alignment, mm. you know? And so I've also now been able to embrace being a spiritual person and having that a part of my every day and not having to be ridiculed for it. And I know it goes against a lot of my family and upbringing and South African cultural 
stuff. But again, I'm here to live life on my own terms. Mm. And, you know, even sitting here and saying out loud that I'm queer and I'm woo woo and I do therapy <laughs> and uh, I'm non-monogamous, I'm a poly woman. These kinds of things, you know, is new, but I'm not going to ever not use my voice or self-censor to make other people feel more comfortable than myself. It kind of just doesn't add up anymore. But you found that you were kind of doing that your whole life up yeah. until that point. Yeah. I thought I was pretty together before, but I, I don't know. I feel like a veil was lifted by hitting rock bottom, mm. truly, <laughs> and having to start over both, you know, professionally and socially. So then it really became, okay, what really makes me excited? What do I really enjoy doing? And so since I left a full-time job and salary, I've just trying to pursue all the things that I've either put off <laughs> out of fear mm. or really just doing things I never thought I would do or being like, I've always had that idea. I'm going to try out every idea until the right idea picks me kind of thing. Right. You know? I'm just not going to, I can't stop. Wow. And giving up that job after it kind of saving your life, you know, from Germany coming here and being able to just settle right back into life here in Taiwan with that security, especially. Yeah. Um, and then making that decision two years later to give that up. Mm. That must be scary. It was pretty scary. And you realize how much fear brain, how strong it is. And realizing too, I mean, I started realizing that when I finally lived alone for the first time, like how much of what happens in my head are other people's voices and opinions and ideas and fears and projections, not mine. And like to slow, and then it's a process. Like, is that idea, that thought, that feeling really mine? Or mm. Somebody else put it there. I think that decision to also leave and then realize, okay, now I have a whole bunch of other fears coming at me. But knowing that I'm, it's not like it was in Germany, like it's not that I can't find a job. I can choose to step back into a full-time teaching thing or any other kind of salaried position. Um, I mean, I still want a salaried job at some point, of course, <laughs> but um, I'm choosing this discomfort mm. and I'm choosing it in a country a space that I feel the most me, I feel supported, I feel safe, I feel protected, I feel loved, and it's okay. So yeah, the fear brain comes, but uh, I also know that just, just because- fight I, through that fear. Yeah, it, just because I'm scared doesn't mean I shouldn't do it. I think mm -hmm. if anything, if I'm scared, do it. Mm. That's exactly, whether it's learning how to drive a scooter for the first time. Right, right. Or getting up on stage and doing stand-up comedy. Mm. That's pretty terrifying. Even more scary than doing burlesque, if I'm honest. Right, that is exactly. Because <laughs> um, I'm just making fun of myself, by the way. I don't talk or joke about other people. I mm. make fun of my failed marriage and uh, <laughs> my coming out and... Bad, have a lot of good material yeah, to work with. Bad waxing experiences. <laughs> nice. Um, my preference for happy endings over happy ever after. Right. <laughs> those know? kind of happy endings. Yeah. The best kind. Yeah, totally. Mm. We all need more of those, mm -hmm. you know? Amen. So uh, <laughs> just being, yeah, like I wanted to find a way to also meet more bisexual and queer women. And so I decided to start my own monthly collective. Hopefully it becomes alive again. We kind of had a hiatus now in summer, but I started that. It's just a monthly get together. 
There's a lot of trans and non-binary people that have come to who have educated me and taken the time out and the patience to really explain things that were completely new and unknown to me. And being also able to confidently hold a safe space for people and to know that I can and I've got the strength to do it. Doing a monthly book exchange mm. just because I love books. Mm -hmm. uh, I like, you know, I love a hard copy. I love used books. Mm. Um, I will, don't think I'll ever buy a Kindle or anything like that. Mm -hmm. um, there's something about there's something about that paper. Oh, it is <sighs> little notes or right. old bookmarks. The creases, or, yeah, the, the smells. Yellowing, yeah. The yellowing paper. <laughs> there's something. <laughs> and yeah, you know, doing that. And um, you mentioned a used bookstore here. Yeah. There's a used bookstore that when I was noticing, this is before I left my job, I would still get really anxious and sad at times, you know, during the dark nights stage. And so it was something I actually did in Berlin too. I went to find a secondhand bookstore to help out at. Mm. And so the one here in Taipei, I went a few times and the English section was in complete disarray. And eventually I just went over and I was like, you don't have anybody to do the English section, do you? And they're mm. like, no. And no. I was like, <laughs> can I do it? And they were like, really? I was like, yep. They're like, are you sure? Like, we can't pay you. I was like, no, I don't want to be paid. I just want to do it. And I kind of want first dibs on the books that I can't see, mm, you know? Nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and so uh, through that, I started going there, like spending up to three to four hours at a time as a way just to calm me down. Mm. It had a very, very calming, it always has had a very calming effect on me being around books. And so that really helped me just when things were feeling a little out of control, I would go to the bookstore and just organize stuff mm. <laughs> and work with them and unpack boxes. And, you know, yeah, there's nothing glamorous about it. It's just something I find really, really calming and soothing. And I think that was also important, like recognizing how to soothe myself when things feel a little manic mm. and books do that. So kind of through that, I host a book exchange. People can bring as many books as they want. They can leave with as many books as they want. There's no money involved. The venues I try to change every two or three months, maybe a cute little retro cafe or something. The venue then can choose which books they want to keep. And then whatever is left over, I take back to that bookstore for them mm. to sell because it's an independent bookstore that raises money and creates jobs for people people with disabilities. Mm, nice. So yeah, it's just their Love Read by Daan Park across. It's called Love Read. Love Read. Okay. By yeah. Daan Park. Yeah, right by Daan Park next okay. to the gas station there. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's just something I do because I like it. And I mean, you're doing all kinds of things. You're also with one of our previous guests, Tenzing Norzo. Yeah. Norzo Tenzing. You are doing some immersive events as well? Yes, I am finally doing my, oh, I feel like it's my dream job, my calling to like produce art events, in particular immersive ones, no phones are allowed. Mm. Um, we'll have a photographer, so don't worry. But um, just to really promote the arts and performers and to kind of create an experience where the audience member can really kind of interact with their own memories and dreams 
and thought and feelings, you know, in a immersive experience. So it's sound and the lighting and the shadow and the music and the everything, you know, I like for it to even smell good, mm. you know, like to have all these elements at play, eat something. And so we've done one event already, which was really, really successful mm -hmm. and really, really beautiful, incredible performers, really. And we combined rope art with drag and uh, we're looking forward to planning our next one in November where I want to highlight dance, mm. uh, kind of contemporary dance. I have another idea forming in the back of my mind, but we'll wait on that mm -hmm. one. Um, but this is really this kind of creative, synergistic kind of collaboration is really just what I want to work on. Somebody asked me, what would I do if money wasn't an issue? And I was mm. like, run my own art production company, mm. <laughs> like art events, you know. So to finally do that thing, because I love to produce, I love the arts, I like to create, I like to take care of people, I like to create spaces. And come parties. Oh, and come parties, of course. <laughs> yes. Can you explain about the come party? You, you must explain yourself, ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> well, the come party is create your magic. Yes. Mm. I don't know where your dirty minds were uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. out there, but it's C-U-M. Exactly. Create, create your, your magic. magic. Uh -huh. Exactly. And uh, this is actually a beautiful party uh, started about Bouncy Babs, who was formerly a Rock and Hose member, mm. then going by the name Duke Vita. Okay. And so Bouncy Babs is the drag mother and host of the Come Parties, which is a drag spectacular event that happens every couple of months. I have the honor and the pleasure to be able to be the stage manager, aka the stage bitch. Mm, uh, who organized, yeah, who has to <laughs> coordinate and organize the, the evenings rundown and the technical rehearsal, make sure all the moving parts, I run between all the moving parts, mm. if you were. Yeah, that's fantastic too. Like to be in these queer spaces with these inspiring, inspiring performers and artists who give me so much energy to help them perform, to see their stuff come alive, to make sure the event goes smoothly, to make sure that they're taken care of, make sure that everybody in that space feels safe and welcome. Also really just speaks to me being me in the best possible way. So yes, I'm also a stage manager for the come parties. Uh, there's one coming up on September 9th. So that's going to be fantastic. That's where it actually all began at Pipe, the Pipe venue, and they'll have it there again. And actually, I was at that first show, too. I performed as a burlesque that first come party. Oh, I see. Yeah. So just come full circle. It has come full circle. <laughs> full, exactly. Yes. Mm -hmm. And... Uh, yeah, so that's also just a beautiful thing that I, I love to be a part of and use my skills. And, you know, somebody else, one of the international drag queens who was there, they were like, you really bring out the mama feminine energy. You know, we're all queens here, but we all know who the boss is. I was like, mm. thank you so much. Coming. That feels good. Yeah, that feels <laughs> really, really good. Thank you, Raja. Oh. meeting like a, an idol of my own. So yeah, I'm, I'm happy to really kind of curate my days and my weeks now with this variety of projects and work that really speak to me, whether it's yeah, Know My World or art classes or book exchanges and About By Time, the 
queer women's group or come party as we are to our immersive things. I'm really just just diving in. I'm kind of all around town. Sometimes at some events, I'm just the bar lady. You mm. might see me working the bar, pouring drinks. Mm. I love to do that too. Yeah, I just want to express, express, express my, yourself. Or in all the ways that I, I find expression. Speaking of that, you mentioned uh, when you were talking about Germany and that you were kind of coming to that realization, your queer mm. realization. So what is your journey like? When did this finally come? Because you mentioned before when you were telling some stories that you hadn't, when you performed, you know, for the gay parade, yeah. that you actually hadn't really figured it out yet. No, I hadn't. I came out to myself and then to my friends on that trip in 2010 when I met Jordi, Rafa's okay. brother. It was on that trip. I traveled for four months backpacking by myself. I'd just gotten my APRC. Mm. So it was my like reward. Exactly. I was like, cheers, yep. I'm, I'm coming back in a couple of months. Um, well done, Anya, five years of uninterrupted work. Right. You know? And I'd paid off all my student debt. So mm. I was like, "You're free. I'm Ready free, to go let's go. So um, it was on that trip and uh, I met a woman who I fell for and I was like, well, if there was ever a time to pursue something brand new and just see where it ends, it's kind of now, like I've got no job or anywhere to be. And so we traveled together for six weeks. It was kind of an, uh, an awakening. At first I was like, oh my God, I think I'm a lesbian. Hmm. Oh man, <laughs> am, I, am I a lesbian? And I was like, I mean, I think... I, I, I like guys still, you know, so I was mm. a little confused. And that's where also Jordi comes in because I was able to talk to Jordi a lot about it on that trip. So when I came back to Taiwan, I was like, okay, I need to tell my friends and I'm not going to be shy about it. I think everybody was like, yeah, we kind of knew. knew. Onyx. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but it, it felt big to kind of like allow it mm. completely. And so being married and realizing I don't, you know, I had a friend point out to me, she's like, okay, hang on. This is while I was in Berlin. She's like, so while you were long distance, you were monogamous, but now that you're married and you're together, you want to open things up. I was right. like, exactly. <laughs> she was like, it's usually the other way. And I was like, yeah, I don't do things in the normal right, way. Exactly. <laughs> and so I, I really tried at the time to, you know, renegotiate and kind of sit down and be like, hey, let's let's be unconventional. Let's just try and like do this in a way that works for all of us. No, I, no, just no. He wanted a traditional kind of setup. And mm. uh, at first, I was like, well, I guess that's what I signed up for. But if I <laughs> If I keep doing this, I think I'm, I'm I don't know what I'm going to do. I'm, I'm not going to be happy or mm. I'm going to do something I'm going to regret. I'm going to hurt you or whatever. And I, I don't want to do that. I just have to be honest with myself. It's hard, you know. So many people think of a bisexual person as like, oh, the unicorn for me and my dysfunctional relationship. Mm -hmm. You know, like, oh, this is going to fix things. And I tried to do that too until I realized I really don't want to be part of any kind of dysfunction functional relationship and I don't know like it's still not easy always I think it's still kind of lonely sometimes mm -hmm. um even in Taiwan even in Taiwan mm -hmm. yeah no look gay or straight dating in Taiwan for a white female <laughs> really sucks <laughs> next episode really really <laughs> sucks we got to do something about this mm. 
but it's okay. Like, I think I've never been happier with mm. myself, in myself, by myself. I don't even feel like I'm by myself. I'm with myself. I enjoy keeping my own company. I enjoy moving around in gay and straight spaces. I enjoy connecting with people. Riding up a scooter. Riding a up, scooter up a up mountain. Up to a cottage in the mountains. Yeah, where my mom lives now. Yes. Exactly. No, things are good. I think it's also learning to... I'm prepared to be misunderstood. Hmm. I think I used to over-explain or worry too much what somebody would say or think. And I'm like, ah, if you misunderstand me, ah, it's fine. Right. Like, whatever. Hmm. I'm, I'm not doing it so you understand. Exactly. Or you give me a stamp of approval. I really don't need hmm. it. It's fine. I'm, I'm finally my own advocate. And uh, it's hard-earned. I mean, I think after the dark night months long it was about six months long of dark night mm. i went to somebody's birthday party at dinner and one of the people there was like you know you really are like super confident like almost like as a diss mm. you know and i just looked at her and i said thank you it's very hard earned i'm not gonna apologize for right being where i am now and i also know it's gonna go up and down mm -hmm. again and that's okay i just know now i have the wherewithal i know i have a greater sense of groundedness and centeredness in myself that won't be shaken or moved by external events which is what i realized i didn't have in germany i was too reliant on all the external things they gave me my sense of self and when everything was taken away i crumbled which is a hard thing to realize at 36 37 when you're supposed to be like <laughs> settling down but i wouldn't change i don't have any regrets i'm pretty proud of this colorful robust unusual unconventional story of mine yeah yeah and it looks like we've come full circle we kind of hinted at it but your mom from south africa has moved to kind of join you here in taiwan we started out the episode talking about this connection between south africa and taiwan mm. uh maybe kind of to end the episode i'm just wondering what does home mean to you and what does taiwan mean to you where does taiwan kind of fit into this well oh, <laughs> it makes me so happy to know that my mom is here and that she's making taiwan her home and right now yes we have found a little cottage a little house up uh, near yaming mountain and what's so beautiful about that it, it kind of gives me the home vibes of you know, the house that she sold in South Africa, you know, cat included. And it just, because my brother's also here. So we each have our own independence now. And we also have a space now that we can go and just be a family. And again, this beautiful mountain in the city um, where my mom can feel safe, where I can have peace of mind having her there. So Taiwan has really just, wow, given me so much over 18 years, a place to come back to, a space to invite my family to. My brother's also been here almost 12 years and to really just bring it all together and realizing this is home. Mm. Um, I have no intention of leaving. I think it's the most rooted and grounded place I've ever lived in. I think it's magical. I think the Taiwanese culture warms my heart. I really still suck, unfortunately, with the language, but the culture, awareness and understanding and appreciation, I think I make up for my lack of language skills. Mm. <laughs> um, still try to forget the German. Right. And... Uh, <laughs> Taiwan is just, 
I want to give back to Taiwan. I want everything that it's allowed me to become as a young adult and now a middle-aged person. I want to now, in whichever shape and form, whether it's through the LGBTQ community, whether it's through the arts, whether it's through education, I want to do it here in Taiwan. I just want to. I don't want to be anywhere else. I don't have this false idea that there's something better out there. I went out there. It's not as great as Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And I think a lot of people realize that when they leave, they either come back or they never forget Taiwan. There is something super magical about this place. It's undeniable. And I'm so lucky to call it home. And I think for it to love me back, this is home. I love this place. Oh, wow. That was a beautiful way to end it. <laughs> Yeah, I want to thank you so much for coming in here and sharing your story so openly, so deeply with such vulnerability and bravery as well. You've had an amazing story, amazing life. And and for you to be able to share those stories so so deeply, it's I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think it's beautiful to see where you are in your life now and really looking forward to what's happening in the future as well. If there's any new kind of projects, you know, we'd love to bring you back on and we can talk about those or Fantastic. Maybe a whole new episode about dating as a white woman in Taiwan. <laughs> <laughs> yes, for sure. <laughs> uh, Thank you, Kane. Yes, I really of enjoyed it. Thank mm. you so much. All right. So we will leave you all with that. Onyx is out for now, but she will be back. <laughs> I will be back. Exactly. All right, everyone. So have a wonderful day and thank you for joining us. Thank Goodbye. you so much. Bye-bye.